Well, good evening. This is our second night of the T.W. Willingham Preacher of the Year series uh, with Reverend Norman Moore. Uh, Reverend Moore has been an evangelist in the Church of the Nazarene for 34 years. And uh, he's a great preacher of the word and a great friend. And it's wonderful to have uh, Reverend Moore and his wife Vicki with us. It's a little chilly outside, isn't it? But we're going to warm it up in here tonight. And uh, let me just mention that this uh, preaching series was instituted in 1989 and is sponsored by the family of Dr. T.W. Willingham, Miriam Strang, Charles, and Albert Willingham. There's some information on this in the back, back there. So uh, we welcome you and we're going to worship together. Let's stand and worship. Thank God for his kindness to us that brought us together again this evening. I appreciate you giving this hour priority. The Lord's here. You remember he promised to be where two or three gather together in his name. And he's here to assist us in some fresh spiritual discoveries. I want to say God bless you for your perseverance in uh, pursuing God's call on your life. He wants to use every one of us in our particular areas of calling. And I'm thankful for that focus, Jonathan, God's grace. Reminds me of a promise, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. It wouldn't be a bit surprising to me, but what some of us or most of us or all of us are in a time of need in one flavor or another. And the good news is that his grace is sufficient. You remember Paul wrote, My God told him, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength or power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pause right now. And now, uh, in your own words, in your own way, would you just take a minute and say, Thank you, God, for your grace and mercy in my life, for our relationship and the honor and privilege I have to be pursuing the ministry to which you've called me. Let's pray together. Father, we come in this evening chapel service focused on what would your Holy Spirit want to say to us from the Scripture? Grateful for the honor of knowing you and thankful for the opportunity to participate with you in ministry as you've called us uniquely. I pray that as these dear friends continue the pursuit of your calling in their life, that day by day, week by week, month by month, your Holy Spirit would continue to open doors and clarify what you have in mind for them. And for those of us who don't have a total grasp of where we're headed, we claim your promise. You told us that any of those who lack wisdom could come to you and you give. If any of you lack wisdom, let them ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given. I pray, God, in these chapel services and these days together, 
that fresh wisdom will be dispensed and clarity and direction and guidance by your Holy Spirit would be provided. Help us now as we look to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you know I was born in Denver but grew up in Pueblo, just about 45 miles south of here. My mom and dad uh, never did go to church, but I was saved at age 11 as a bus kid from an unchurched home. But I had networked my dad with a caring layman from First Church of the Nazarene down in Pueblo, a fellow named Glenn Nauman. He's in heaven now. Um, Glenn cultivated a very thick relationship with my dad, especially in my dad's last year. Glenn would show up at the house and have a cup of coffee and fix a leaky faucet or a broken pipe or do any chore he could around the house when my dad was too sickly to function that way. I got a phone call one day and told me that Glenn had led my dad to the Lord. My dad was 81, terminally ill. Well, I uh, remember... May of 1992, I got on a plane in Southern California, flew here to Colorado Springs, got a rental car, and I had a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday revival over in Canyon City. But I also needed to get down to Pueblo and say goodbye to my dad. I was so nervous and intimidated. I don't know why we get so nervous when trying to talk to our unsaved family about spiritual things. I walked in my dad's hospital room and my mouth was dry and my heart was beating rapidly and the perspiration on my palms left the blood or moist residue in my Bible cover. I needed to say something of an appropriate spiritual flavor, but all I could manage was, well, dad, looks like you're about to the end of the road. He said, reckon so. I said, how are you feeling about that? He pointed to the ceiling from his hospital bed and said, I hope he's waiting for me. Well, being a preacher, I had to run him through the test, don't you know? Well, you do believe Jesus Christ is God's son, don't you? He says, oh, yeah, and you have asked him to forgive you of your sins, haven't you? He says, oh, yeah, sure. I got, took care of all that with Glenn already. Well, we had a brief visit. And before I left, I said, is there anything I can do for you? He said, oh, just say a prayer for me. Well, I read some psalms and prayed a prayer. Next day, I stepped in the hospital room. I was a little bit less apprehensive. Walked up to his bedside. Well, Dad, it looks like you got me beat. He said, what do you mean? I said, looks like you get to go to heaven before I do. He said, probably so. Had a little visit. Anything I do for you? He said, oh, just say a prayer for me. Again, I read some psalms and prayed a prayer. And after I prayed, the most unusual thing happened. He prayed. The first and only time I heard that stubborn, bald-headed Irishman pray. It was right there in that hospital room. Well, I finished revival up in Canyon City, ran down to Pueblo, say goodbye before I came up to catch my plane on Monday. I still remember that talk. I said, Dad, thanks for being a good dad. Thanks for roof over my head and clothes on my back and food on the table. Thanks for every fishing trip and every ball game. Thanks for every ride in your Chevrolet. I said, if I don't see you again, I'll see you in a better world. He squeezed my hand real tight and grinned real big and said, you betcha. Last time I ever saw him. You ever had to say goodbye to somebody you really cared about? Can you project those feelings and emotions 
as we read Paul's farewell words to a protege preacher boy named Timothy that he really loved and cared about. Bible scholars say that Paul's last letter preserved for us in the scriptures, 2 Timothy. And tonight, for a few minutes, we review the last chapter of his last letter. And Paul is saying goodbye. And Paul serves us in ministry and the pursuit of God's call in our hearts. He serves a great example of perseverance and tenacity. And as he says goodbye to Timothy at chapter 4, verse 6, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. He uses unusual vocabulary that we're not totally familiar with in our culture. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. I wonder what in the world is a drink offering. Well, I looked it up, and you know what I found out? It had roots in Old Testament worship, and it also had roots in current-day Greek-Roman culture. There's a story in the Old Testament. David was in battle, let it be known that he was thirsty, and at great risk, a runner was summoned and brought water to King David. And when he realized the peril involved in bringing him water, you remember what he said? He said, man, I can't drink this. This is too sacred. The Bible says he poured it out on the ground, and he called it a drink offering to God. And Paul reaches way back and grabs hold of that idea and tosses it to Timothy and says, they're not taking my life from me. I'm voluntarily laying it down as a drink offering for the Christ who shed his blood on Calvary for me. Found out the drink offering also had roots in Greek and Roman culture in Paul's current day. Found out that uh, among the pagans, they had what they called drink offering. And they take their goblet, typically filled with a wine or an ale, and they pour its contents over the empty dinner platter after their banquets, festive holiday meals. How'd you like to be the busboy at their banquet? In Christian culture, we bow our heads and say an appropriate table grace, but I read that among the pagans, they practice drink offering at the end of their meal. And Paul's saying to Timothy, familiar with the culture, they're not taking my life from me, I'm voluntarily pouring it out as an expression of my thanks and appreciation and worship and praise to Jesus who died for me. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. Well, when you read that, you get the impression he's using figurative language about his pending death, and he certainly is. But a little word study on the term translated departure is revealing. There's a variety of hues and flavors of that term. The term here, translated departure, for example, was the same word used for unfasten the shackles. We call them handcuffs that held a prisoner. Or unlock a jail cell door and let a prisoner go free. Synonyms would be turn loose, let go, release, set free. And Paul grabs that illustration that he's quite familiar with, captivity, and said, uh, the time has come for me to be released. Let go, turn loose, set free, made ready for departure. I'd had a second usage 
I found out. It was the same term used for untie a tent rope that held the canvas securely in place. I guess you know for a while, of necessity, Paul was bivocational. He was in a tent maker. I guess if he were living today, he'd be in the mobile home business. Pretty logical to assume he did business with the nomadic merchants that traveled north and south throughout the region. In our culture, we go to the mall. But in Paul's culture, the mall moved to the people from town to town. They set up a big tent city outside of town, similar to a traveling circus in earlier years here. And they'd saturate the population with their commodities and wares. And management would do the calculations. And when sales would drop off and traffic would subside, they'd conclude, well, it looks like we've done all the business here we're going to do. And the announcement would be spread throughout the camp. Tomorrow morning at daybreak, we're going to fold our tents and load the camels, and we're moving on to the next town. Same term used here for departure was the word used for untie a tent rope and allow the canvas to fall, a temporary mobile dwelling. And Paul says, well, Tim, it looks like I've done all the business here I'm going to do. And this temporary dwelling is about to fall. I'm moving on. You know, I know what? I found a third usage for this same word. Translated departure. It was a term used for untie the mooring rope that held the, can the, the ship securely at dock. I have an advantage over Paul. I use... Boeing vessels and get around the country rather conveniently. He traveled more slowly, sometimes foot, sometimes horseback, sometimes sailing ship. Not too hard for me to imagine him board a steep ramp, lean over the railing of that ship, look down on the dock. I bet you more than once he'd watch a young sailor boy take a big old thick fibrous woven rope untie it from its mooring peg. And with a big heave, that sailor boy would throw that rope up on the deck of the ship. The sails would be hoisted and the wind would fill the sails. Skillfully, the pilot would guide the ship from the dock out into the harbor. And eventually from the harbor out into the sea. They hadn't read the song yet, but Paul was thinking similar thoughts. I've anchored my soul In the haven of rest, I'll sail these wild seas no more. He anticipated dropping anchor in a, another harbor adjacent to the city whose builder and maker is God. Verse 6 is very vivid and picturesque. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. When I'm going to be released from earthly captivity and I've concluded my business here and I'll sail on to a better world. Look at verse 7. He says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I kept the faith. I'm a curious Bible student. I noticed he opted for an adjective. I have fought the good fight. I've been in some fights, weren't so good. Did you know every fight you can be involved in is a good fight? I said, what in the world does he think is a good fight? Checked it out. The fight of right against wrong. The kingdom of God against the kingdom of Satan. And righteousness against unrighteousness. 
Reminds me of a legend I read. There were two Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep met on a steep, narrow pathway next to the cliff. It's in the nature of Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep to have head-on collisions. A lot of believers I've known, too. As the legends unfolded, the ram on the top end of the hill says, I've got the advantage of downhill momentum. I just get a good run and I'll butt him off the cliff. The ram on the lower end of the hill, the legend tells, thought, I don't want to risk the potential fatality of a head-on collision, but I can't compromise and back down my position. So he had the better idea. He prostrated himself on the path and motioned to the other ram. And the legend concludes, the ram on the top end of the hill passed over the other. They both went on their way in safety. And sometimes in our discipleship, the best thing we can do is follow that same example. Get on our knees and keep our mouth shut. And let those potential collisions be avoided and escape unnecessary bloodshed and fatality. Paul said, I fought the good fight. And the flavor of his original language is I didn't dissipate my time, energy, or resources with ineffective, irrelevant fights. I fought the good fight and didn't fool around with irrelevant fights. What else did he say? I finished the race. And the tone of that remark is I didn't give up and drop out. Even it was obvious I was losing. I wonder if he ever felt like quitting. From the time he met the Lord on the Damascus Road, the time he leaves this world after his farewell words to Timothy, did he ever feel like quitting? I mean, he was lied about and thrown in jail. He was whipped unjustly. He was stoned and left for dead. Funny thing about that story in the book of Acts when he woke up. He went back to the same town, just beat him up. I'd have gone to the airport, wouldn't you? He was shipwrecked. He was snake-bit. He was abandoned by his friends. He was broke and cold and lonely and deserted. Do you think he ever felt like quitting? He said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And the tone of that statement is I didn't give up and drop out. Reminds me of another story I read. A little seventh grade boy went to his older brother and said, I want you to come watch me Saturday. He said, watch you do what? He said, I'm going to run the mile. He laughed. He said, run the mile? He said, yeah, it's the all-district intramural track meet. I've entered. Anybody who wants to run can participate. He said, you don't got a chance. He said, I want you to come watch. He said, all right. Well, the announcer called the runners to the starting block, and he squatted down and looked down the chalk line lanes, and 22 pistol went off, and bam, they were off. And that skinny little seventh grader led the whole bunch. Sophomores, juniors, seniors, he was way out in front for the first 20 yards. Then one after the other, they all passed him, but he stayed with it for all he's worth. But on the third lap of that four-lap mile, he heard a stampede behind him. He looked over his shoulder, and oh, man, here they come again. 
And the whole bunch passed him a second time. And folks in the grandstand started pointing and laughing and said, who's that skinny little kid out there? And the older brother let his face drop in his hands. And he mumbled, oh, I tried to warn you. Well, a string was stretched tightly across the finish line, and a tall, masculine senior boy broke the string, and the crowd applauded, and officials selected runner number one and two and three. They were presented their ribbons. Then the crowd's attention was quickly jerked back out on the track because there's that skinny little seventh grader finishing the last straightaway, the fourth lap of that mile. And he crossed the finish line, and the whole crowd stood to their feet and applauded for an, with an enthusiasm that surpassed theirs for the winner. He didn't win. He finished. Ten minutes later in the locker room, the kid was changing clothes. And the older brother went and found him and said, I can't believe it. When you saw that you were beat, why didn't you quit? The kid revealed how novice he was about track. His eyebrows arched. His mouth dropped open. He smacked his forehead said, I didn't know you could quit. And you know what? Neither did Paul. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I fought the good fight and didn't fool around with irrelevant fights. I kept the faith. I finished the race and didn't drop out. I'm wondering if I'm talking to somebody here tonight who has silently, privately mused and meditated on, oh man, I didn't expect all this. And you wonder if it's worth hanging in there. Paul says, I finished the race and I didn't give up even if it was obvious I was losing. He said next in verse 7, I've kept the faith. In modern day, the terms keep the faith, baby, has been uh, widely used. And with that little encouragement, there's uh, the admonition, maintain a positive attitude, optimistic viewpoint. Certainly is a lot of value in that. But what's translated here, I kept the faith, kept is a legal term used in court, in business transactions. For example, if you're selling a piece of property, buyer, seller, Agreements, purchase price, second trust deed, term of escrow, who gets the drapes, you got to termite the place, date of closure. Agreements that a buyer and seller would enter into contractually. If at the end of that period of time you had fully fulfilled your aforesaid commitments, that legal term would be used. Used in court. Attorney talk. You kept synonyms, lived up to without deviation or compromise. No fudging. When Paul says, I kept the faith, he's saying something more substantial than I maintained a positive attitude. He's saying, I didn't dilute my commitment. I didn't fudge. I didn't compromise. I didn't take a shortcut. And as you pursue the dream that God has planted in your heart about ministry for the future, Paul serves as a great example for us this evening of tenacity and perseverance and commitment and dedication. And consecration. He concludes with that 
next verse. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Good news is there's a crown waiting for you. And he says, and not only for me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do you have the assurance in your heart if your life ended at this very next second, you'd be safe with the Lord in heaven forever? Jesus Christ, God's son, shed his blood on Calvary, paid the price on the cross so you could be saved, forgiven, and go to heaven. It's my assumption that 100% of this attendance tonight are born-again Christians and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But in the, in the event that that may be beyond your current reality, the great news is, before you leave, you and Jesus can get acquainted. He paid the price on the cross with his shed blood for your forgiveness. Buried him in a borrowed tomb. God had a better idea and raised him on the third day. That story, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you know what they call that? The gospel. You know what it means? It means good news. And you, dear friend, i got to tell you, it's the best news you'll ever hear in your whole life. If there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus as your personal Savior, no better time than now, no better place than here. But I would conclude and certainly assume that most of you, if not all of you, are born-again Christians. But for us, the Holy Spirit applies to our hearts. Regard your ministry as an outpour drink offering. Paul wasn't a whiner. He didn't complain didn't feel sorry for himself. He lived in readiness for departure. When he'd be released from captivity, conclude his business here, and sail on to a better world. In the meantime, while we're still here and serving, preparing, deploying ourselves where God opens doors, let's remember to fight the good fight, no other kind of fight. And finish the race and not drop out, even if we think we're losing. And keep the faith and don't fudge and compromise our commitments in glad anticipation that there's a crown of righteousness which the Lord himself will award to us on that day. Please stand with me. Perhaps the Lord has spoken to you about timely relevant issues in your relationship with him in your personal life or in your pursuit of ministry as you've sensed his call in your life and are continuing your preparations here jonathan will lead us in an invitation course and without any hassle or pressure i would just like to give you a cordial opportunity to spend some time in prayer here at the altar if kneeling's not comfortable for you physically, you'd be welcome to be seated on the front chairs. But by your forward coming, you're saying, God's spoken to my heart. I want to let my heart respond to the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit and take full advantage, optimum usage of this opportunity and connect with him. Between now and when you walk out the doors, every one of us can connect with the Lord in a timely, updated, authentic way. You may come and pray if you choose. It occurs to me that there may be some privately, silently contemplating, what will it cost me if 
I wholeheartedly follow God's call in my life. As a dedicated, sanctified, spirit-filled, conscientious disciple of the Lord Jesus, what will it cost you if you do? Here's another question to consider. What will it cost you if you don't? God's here. The Holy Spirit's been speaking to us. He promises in his word, so shall my word be that goes forth that will not return void or empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. If you and the Lord need to have a talk, it's in your best interest to respond to the Holy Spirit's kind, gentle whisper. He's not here to nag you. He's here to help you. If you want to pray, you may come. We'll share one more course, and that'll be all. Jesus. Amen. Thanks for your reverence and your attention to God's Word. If there are friends who'd like to pray with these who are kneeling, you're welcome to join us. Pause with me and thank the Lord for His Spirit's presence and His voice to you tonight. Father, we appreciate Your Word, the gentle, kind way Your Holy Spirit coaches us from its truth. I pray for these who've come forward and others who kneel in a private place in their heart where they stand. Connected with you, help us each to walk in new light and implement an uncompromised total obedience to your will for our lives as you enable us to understand it. Thank you for these special services. Go with those who will be leaving and continue to meet with us and tomorrow in Jesus' name. Amen. Honor to be with you. Thanks for coming. God bless you all. You may be dismissed.